0: And this is DataCast Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science Hello everyone, Uh, welcome to another episode of DataCast And today I'm speaking with Mal Fabian Mel is a data scientist at Anderson, a Y combinator startup in Paris where he works on automation of data exploration and feature extraction for textual data. He majored in actual Science at the University of Lausanne, and did a second master in data science at Telecom Paris Tech Engineering School. He is also a content writer for several blogs and a freelance machine learning instructor for two boot camps in Paris and DECA. He is especially interested in application of uh, machine learning uh, to the medical field. So, uh, Mel, I'm glad to have you on the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me today.
0: Awesome. So let's start our conversation. Uh, I want to talk about your educational background. So I saw that you uh, you study economics from uh, ADC Lawson in Switzerland for your bachelor degree. So can you talk more about your undergrad experience?
1: Sure. So I grew up in in France and moved a few years before high school in uh, Switzerland. I graduated uh, from high school with a major in math, and I was looking for universities in Switzerland at that point. Well, Switzerland has a great uh, education system, but uh, there is only 8 million people living in the country. So you pretty much guess that the number of universities is also limited. Um, So when you have to make a choice, uh, you make a choice uh, between Uh, specialized schools so I chose the University of Lausanne which is the one that handles so HEC Lausanne which is the the part of the University of Lausanne that handles uh, economic studies. At HEC Lausanne there is quite a funny atmosphere at first since in first year there's a little over uh, 1,000 students. Basically around 300 people will make it to that bachelor degree Um, so there is quite a competition at first and I was rather young. When I started university, I was 16. Um, so I guess that's quite a, a big of a challenge that I remember, you know, being that uh, that age and trying to, to go through that bachelor. So I remember for the anecdotes uh, some crazy math classes. Those were on like Tuesday and Thursday. It was in the morning and since there were fewer seats than students who wanted to attend the class, uh, the class was starting at 8 a.m. and everyone would be basically queuing up, uh, started from 6 a.m. Uh, outside of the room. Uh, but that being said, once you once I got into that bachelor's degree, uh, I really had some great teachers. Uh, I was focusing on statistics, financial mathematics, uh, macroeconomics, microeconomics. Um, I chose economics because I felt it was a way to get pretty close to the professional world and have courses that are certain way applied to uh, the, the outside world. Then I soon found out that there's probably nothing more disconnected from the real world than economic theories, <laughs> but the, the university is, I'd say, incredibly dynamic, and there's several events per day, close to 30,000 students on the whole campus in Lausanne, uh, and there's a great uh, view on the lake of Geneva in front of the uh, some crazy mountains in the Alps, so definitely a, a great experience.
0: As I research about you, you know, you actually co-founded Quenago, which is the world's first van acquisition and conversion crowdfunding platform as you were close to finish your undergrad degree. And you actually share about this experience in your blog. So, um, can you talk more about this uh, entrepreneurial standard, Josh?
1: Sure. Well, the the university has quite a good entrepreneurial spirit. So, there are two main contests, so entrepreneurial contests on the campus. One of them is Start Lausanne, and Start Lausanne is a contest uh, a contest that lasts over six months. People come with some crazy ideas, and the best of them finish the contest with a, like a full business plan, a proof of concept, and some money to, to really launch the product. So in my uh, third year of Bachelor, uh, I took part in this, contest with, uh, in this contest with a friend, and I had an idea to build kind of a kickstarter for van and motorhome home acquisition. So the concept is quite easy. So if one wants to buy a van but needs, uh, for example, uh, $5,000, he creates a project on the platform and indicates the vehicle he wants to buy and fills a calendar with all the dates at which the vehicle will be published on the platform. And people on the other side of the platform uh, can pledge money on the project and book, for example, a week or two on the, in the Martyr home in exchange. Mm-hmm. So it's like Kickstarter, but in exchange for a contribution, you get a rental on the vehicle. So I did a contest uh, with a friend of mine, and we the first step, which is the elevator speech, then the next one, the business, the business, and then you have the final presentation around the full room of, uh, of students. And we managed to get the Jerry prize uh, among uh, the initial pool of 65 projects and a bit of money to launch the project. So that was really what got me into entrepreneurship. It was really this contest and having teachers uh, from the faculty pushing students and also a lot of um, students uh, talking about this contest and uh, and and taking part uh, taking part into it. I've worked on the project during pretty much my whole master's degree. So it's really started during this uh, third year of bachelor my whole master's degree. We launched the product in France. Uh, We did partnerships with large French insurance company with many van manufacturers and uh, dealerships. We were invited on the largest van show in Europe. We met our first customers there and it's really, I'd say, a great human experience and a kind of a life accelerator. I'd say from, from the point of view of someone who's still pretty young but has the opportunity to, to really dive into entrepreneurship. I really say it's it's uh, you, you have to go for it. I took the opportunity also to start doing web development, so to be working on the website of, of, uh, of my company. And it made me realize that at the age, so at that point I was 19, so at the age of 19 with my co-founder, who was 20, we could really uh, have an impact in a sector that lacked innovations. So it's a sector that has not seen any innovation, in, in, apart from the technical ones, on the, on the van and on the mother home itself. We managed to, to get the project running for two years and a half. And it was quite hard to handle, I'd say, both the startup and the master studies, and I really put a lot of my time and money into, into this project, and we stopped the project after our uh, master studies. Uh, since both my co founder and I had finished uh, our master's, and, and we met the also, we had some financial constraints on the projects, which right. were that we were it was really hard on such a platform to get a full time salary. So we stopped the project there. But it's definitely something I'd recommend, and, and I'm really thankful for uh, you know having such a, a, a crazy entrepreneurial spirit on the campus, and it's, uh, and it's really something cool.
0: It's really cool. Do you do you think that you want to like you know be like a founder in the future just from this experience and and if so, like what what are some of the I guess like domain or industry that you are interested in?
1: Well, I, I think it's something that never really leaves you. So once you get that spirit, you even within a within a company, you'd be very much into entrepreneurial uh, spirit. So really trying to develop also uh, innovating project within the company you're working for i really keep in mind to mix both data science and and entrepreneurship in the in the future trying to gain as much uh, as much experience on the in, in data science these days and, and yeah keeping in mind that entrepreneurship is really something that it's that is truly um yeah that that's that's truly inspiring and and in my current experiences i've worked mostly in, in startups and Meeting with uh, the founders and, and talking daily to the founders really keeps that uh, that entrepreneurial spirit uh, going.
0: You decided to follow up your bachelor degree with a master degree in actuarial science, also at uh, at UC Lawson. So, can you uh, discuss what the discipline of actuarial science is about?
1: Yeah, so actuarial science is a kind of an unknown field, but it focuses on statistics and mathematical modeling. For the insurance sector, so actuaries uh, create, I'd say, insurance products that reflect a probability of occurrence or a risk of occurrence of a certain factor. So, the, so you have to build. So, we, there are several uh, types of actuaries, but I was into pricing. So, pricing actuaries try to produce your pricing that reflects the the modeling of previous risks and occurrences of a, of a certain event. So you might find uh, actuaries into car insurance policies, into health sector, maybe into cat bonds, uh, which are catastrophic bonds for the reinsurance sector, so for large climate events. So I chose actuarial science because I really Uh, in a sense liked my math and stat courses and it was the most quantitative uh, master that was offered into my uh, degree and I felt that I wanted to go into something quantitative and the insurance industry in Switzerland is really large so it's one of the largest sectors Uh, and it's quite dynamic which is interesting because there's also a lot of uh, intro tech and, and small startups trying to get into this field. So actual science is kind of uh, combining both, which is uh, which is good. So it's quite a null discipline. So the actual science department of the University of Lausanne just turned 100 years uh, years old today. Um, so there's only two universities in Switzerland that do offer actual degrees, which is also why I, I stayed in uh, in the University of Lausanne.
0: And uh, during your time doing the master degree, you also did two uh, student teaching assistantship. One for corporate finance classes and another for a public finance class. Uh, so how, how were those uh, teaching assistant experience for you?
1: Teaching assistant jobs are really, really great. Um, so it's something that I really like with Switzerland. It's, it's something that is not common in France to have, for example, teaching assistant. But in Switzerland, it's really common. A, a first contact with teaching that really uh, brings value, uh, it turned out to be really interesting. So I... It's, I think it's a good way to get to the bottom of a topic. You are pretty close to teachers, uh, and I had some really great and inspiring teachers during those uh, TAs. I worked between one and two days a week because you have to manage the master's degree on your on the side, and I was also beating uh, one ago, so my, uh, my startup project. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also a good way to, yeah, to, to, to face something that is a bit challenging, both technically, mentally, and in terms of the quantity of work you can take in. It's also a great way to uh, move on to a PhD afterwards, because uh, most teachers in Switzerland value it. And one of the things that I remember from uh, those two TAs, that correcting 350 exams is definitely something hard.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure like you learn a lot on how to manage your time and um, resources, right? like You have to juggle between a variety of projects. And coursework and exactly. different things. So I think that's definitely uh, learning learning how to be resourceful at, uh, during during your time there. You also did a six-month internship at uh, Valjez Assurance at, uh, as a part of your master, in which you focus on an individual non-life product pricing. So could you mind going over this master thesis in finer detail?
1: To, to just to clarify on actual science, it's a discipline that brings uh, linear algebra. Statistics, probability, times, statistics, processes, and many other topics that are definitely helpful for data science afterwards. So Vaudoise Insurance is kind of a small insurance company in Switzerland. It's like the sixth biggest insurance company. I had a lot of autonomy on the product. so I worked on. So in Switzerland, you have some companies that are working on health insurance policies that are mandatory but private, and other companies that work on complementary products, which was the topic of my master thesis. The company has a $10 million portfolio on this special product, which is a complementary health insurance product. At that point, it had not been updated for a long time, so maybe 15 years. So the portfolio was just running, and they kept collecting uh, premiums every year, and it required a full review. That was a great Opportunity to have a lot of responsibilities with a portfolio that is medium-sized compared to the company, but seemed like a huge amount of money for a fresh graduate. So I had to go through the data extraction, data cleaning, anomaly detection, feature extraction, then the pure modeling with maximum likelihood estimations, and you have to, to find the, do uh, make a lot of distribution fitting to uh, also estimate the probability of observing such or such events. Then the pricing itself, uh, which is quite technical. Once you have the pricing running, then you have to do a whole scenario analysis and submit the tarification and the pricing to the actual department. All of that in six months. Mm. Um, so that was a pretty intense period, and uh, I ended up with a master thesis of over uh, one hundred and fifty pages, <laughs> which was, which was funny. But uh, conducting such analysis um, at a young age and uh, being a fresh graduate and taking decisions on a ten million dollar portfolio is really something that I'm grateful for.
0: Interesting. I'm just curious, what uh, what sort of like software tools or, or package that you use? for all this uh, market analysis
1: work? Actual science is pretty close to finance in terms of the tools it uses. Mm. So most of the analysis in, in the company would be done in Excel, programming daily taskware on uh, VBA, but I also pushed to go on uh, to use R. So mm. both, co- yeah, combining VBA and R and then a lot of uh, data visualization uh, with tools that are available on the market.
0: Do you think that you know the insurance in specific, and I guess finance in general, would they, would they start adopting more you know other sort of tools, you know such as Python, uh, in the future? What is your your thoughts on that?
1: Well, it's quite funny because I finished uh, just yesterday, so we'll I think we'll come back to to that a bit later on. But uh, I started teaching machine learning and uh, introduction to data science and to Python programming, and. I just finished yesterday an introduction to Python for a large uh, French bank. They are willing to move into Python, but are a bit scared for the moment of the packages they can find online and uh, of the giving too much autonomy to the employees is not, in their view, the best way. So they try to, there are large SaaS users, so they control the packages that are uh, installed and that's I think the the, the main factor that's preventing them from uh, uh, going fully into Python but they're willing to make a shift and I think the shift will be made and there's a lot of convergence between data science and uh, actual science or finance so Python I think will be something that is more and more common over time in in the actual science so insurance and and finance sector. They they have a lot of um, employees who are used to programming in, in SAS, for example. And training them on Python really requires a lot of time. And, and they have to deploy some successful project at first. And once they get that proof of concept running, then they're, uh, maybe they, they'll adopt Python a bit, uh, a bit more.
0: So after finishing your degree at uh, University of Lawson, you decided to uh, enroll in a postmaster program in Big Data at Telecom Paris Tech. Uh, That focused on statistic, machine learning, deep learning, reinforcement learning, and programming, uh, among others. So what was your motivation to do so?
1: Well, there's a lot of convergence, uh, as I said, between actual science and data science. At that point, I was still pretty young, so I was 21, and I wanted to work in a field that was a bit more, I'd say, competitive, to, you know, attend a lot of events and to kind of... solution that can shape the future but in a, in a larger way. I also wanted to have a degree in France and uh, to I, I had heard so much about the Paris startup ecosystem that I really felt well, uh, that I really felt was dynamic so I wanted to, to get into it from the inside. And the university, so Telecom has a great reputation in France, and the program was one of the first AI programs in France, uh, which was built in 2013. Yeah, all those reasons pushed me to, to apply uh, to the master, and, and turned out to be a, a pretty wise decision, since I've checked um, most actual science um, position these days are open to data scientists and it's really a shift that has been made in the last, I'd say, 18-month topic of the large conferences in actual science is should pricing go 100% machine learning or should we keep an actuary in the loop? So the convergence that are really speeding up and uh, applying to this degree felt, uh, felt quite natural.
0: So uh, at, at Telecom Paris Tech, you did a deep learning research project for the French Employment Center on Multimodal Emotion Recognition uh, where your team delivers uh, state-of-the-art models in text, sound, and video processing for sentiment analysis. And uh, the, source, the solution is actually also open source on GitHub. Uh, so, could you mind uh, discussing the end-to-end process of creating this project, including the context, the uh, dataset, the methodology, and uh, the final web application?
1: Sure. Um, So, it's a project that lasted over close to nine months. So, it's a project that really we we, we did over the the whole year. There were four of us working on the project. So, the French Employment Center is looking for uh, ways to let job-seeking candidates uh, train themselves on a platform and get automated feedback from that platform. So, one of the ways they found to, to do that would have been to create that platform uh, that would give automated feedback on the emotions both from the video, the sound, and the text uh, to the to the job candidate. That being said, they had they had no training data available, so the solution had to go 100%. Had to be based 100% from open data. So. Part of uh, the project was also to to look for relevant data sources that could fit into this context. Uh, we managed to find data sources that were, you know, not being too obviously played by actors um, from the sound or video uh, perspective, um, but that remained a bit far from the behavior you would have in a in an interview. That's one of also of the recommendations we did when we delivered the project was to. Retrain the, the models with more relevant data. So, in terms of uh, methodology, we split it um, the text, sound, and video processing. To so the the aim was to have a web application in which the candidate could test uh, independently text, sound, and uh, so it's text, audio, and and video performance. And if we had time merge all of those into a large model and give automated feedback. One of the restrictions we had is that the French Employment Center wouldn't use APIs that would allow to make speech-to-text. So we knew we had to split both. And um, and yeah, so I was in charge of the video processing. I found my open data sets and I trained, um, so I started Training my first models, uh, it's quite a challenging field actually, because uh, finding right data sources and annotated properly is quite tough. Um, and it's really you are ER getting when you touch when you touch to human emotions and and facial emotions. It's really uh, the annotation is really subjective. So even if you use uh, some Amazon Mechanical Turk uh, or other services, it, it's it's really something that will be subjective. And so I had to tune the, the models for quite a long time and the training remained uh, quite a quite a bit of a yeah of a heavy weight because it took on average uh, three four five hours to, to train a single model but in the end we managed to all of us get uh, the, the training of the models to be ready and have satisfying uh, accuracies. so in terms of video processing I was the labels i had were some some uh, basic feelings so happy sad uh, anger we had i, I think i had uh, six labels and uh, i reached an accuracy of around 64 65% uh, and state of the art was around uh, 67 to 68% mm. We were pretty happy, all of us, uh, with the respective models that were trained, and we deployed all the single models in a web application. So we used Flask, which is really great to deploy um, small web applications. And uh, and we were invited by the French Employment Center uh, in front of their data science teams to talk about the the work we did and uh, and make a first demo. And nowadays they're they're still using the project basic building block for. Uh, deploying it at scale and they're really looking to push this project in, uh, into production. So uh, it was really an interesting experience and the, the whole field of effective computing really interesting and, and we had great feedback from the, the teachers around us.
0: Fantastic yeah fantastic. I, uh, I definitely linked that at the, the, the GitHub repo in the show notes. I saw that you know the, the readme is quite comprehensive and people can actually see uh, how, how do you guys design a model. Right, so as you mentioned, you, you took, took care of the video processing component, right? Other people uh, was looking at text processing and, and audio processing and all these three separate models was, was being deployed in the app and then given uh, and, and presented to the stakeholders. Yeah, that's it, exactly. I'm uh, really impressed about like sort of the whole... because you actually like try to deploy it into a web app, which is the final step and very important. Myself, personally, I'm trying to learn more about Model deployment and then even small thing like how to learn, learn how to use Flash is also um, something that I'm trying to get better.
1: Yeah, and uh, and just to to mention, we deployed the web app, so the the, the framework, uh, so the web framework was Flask, and uh, we deployed it using a service called Render, which started to get quite famous. They won a pretty tough competition, tech competition last month, and uh, and it was really quite easy to, to deploy this web application using render so that's definitely something I, i'd recommend um, to anyone looking to have his web application running uh, on the web
0: on the side of just studies you did a six-month part-time internship in uh, natural language processing for bimbley which is a productivity application for engineers so what interesting projects that you were involved with at bimbley
1: Well, just to clarify what is Beamly, they're building an application that groups the messages for engineers, uh, but messages from GitHub, from uh, Slack, from Zendesk, so from many sources into a single feed. And the aim of Beamly is to show the most relevant information for engineers uh, into uh, this feed. And uh, they have a search Function and I was in charge of improving this search function so that it does not only react to keywords but it also reacts to the context of the words that are being searched for. So the the way I had to approach the problem, and, and I was lucky enough to. So the company is, is just offering great conditions. So they're fully remote, which allowed me to work remote, and they schedule meetings with uh, really great data science leaders, and uh, and it's I I had the opportunity to learn a lot from uh, from advisors, and uh, so basically we are embedding the input uh, text, and we are embedding the whole uh, messages field, uh, the the whole feed, and the idea is to do uh, something that is hierarchical, uh, meaning that we embed uh, rolling windows of three, five, or seven words, for example, and this way, when we look for the most similar uh, vector on the embedding, we find the shortest sentence and the shortest sequence of words that matches the query of the person, which means that we do not embed the whole message, but really we, we embed uh, fixed um, fixed uh, windows. And and it turned out to work pretty successfully. And, uh, and it's really an experience I, I learned a lot from. And that was quite unexpected because I wasn't thinking about getting a part-time uh, internship where I was working uh, two to three days a week at mm. most for for them and it's kind of hard to be in Paris and they're in the, they have part of the team in the Tunisia and part of the team in San Francisco so the meetings were at quite crazy hours but uh, we, we managed to have that running and, and it's, uh, it was a, a cool uh, a cool internship.
0: you have been a machine learning instructor. At uh, uh, Viva Data, which is um, a specialized uh, artificial intelligence programming school in Paris, since um, earlier this year. So, can you talk more about this involvement?
1: Yeah, so I was first contacted by Viva Data uh, after they found about some of my articles on Medium, and they were l- launching a two two and a half month boot camp uh, in what they call full stack data science. It's it's really something that is quite full. So it covers uh, statistics. For, so for, from from a practitioner point of view, so they don't go in, they don't dive too much into the math, but they would cover statistics, machine learning, deep learning, data engineering. They added a reinforcement learning module, natural language processing, computer vision, all of that based on the Python programming. So if you want to teach in some of those boot camps. it's really um, a full program meaning that whatever topic you're interested in they basically cover it Uh, so i've been teaching since uh, since then two to four days a month uh, on average and i uh, basically take days off to to teach there and it's always a great experience so each i i'd say that each class is an opportunity to get to the bottom of a topic and by trying to explain it you always master the topic better than you used to and it's also a great way to be confronted with questions that challenge your view on a certain topic, so I've been teaching courses on uh, statistics, on some of these most common machine learning algorithms, but also uh, on the uh, generative adversarial networks uh, for face generation. And I'm currently creating the reinforcement learning module. And, uh, and since then, it's been only more and more opportunities coming from this teaching side. And I'll be going to Dakar in, uh, in Senegal two weeks and a half because uh, they are launching the uh, dakar institute of technology and and moving to africa to teach for uh three weeks is something that i would have never expected at the beginning of the year kind of my uh philosophy became to uh, learn a topic enough to teach it but teach it enough to learn it and uh and i had quite a a good feeling with students and uh, I watched a lot of data science videos on YouTube and try to identify what works for me and uh, and what doesn't and uh, and then I based my teaching style on the uh, life illustrations with got a lot of drawings uh, on the table but I also prepare a lot of uh, drawings uh, from uh, using pages on the on my computer and, and have something quite uh, visual when there is equations, I break them uh, into several pieces and uh, explain the, explain them term by term. and that's really what works for me. So that's what I'm trying to duplicate in, uh, in, those, co- in those courses that I teach.
0: Did, did you uh, receive any feedback from a student you know, when you teach these classes? And um, I'm also curious what sort of demographics are the people who like, attend this bootcamp?
1: You, you get feedback from... Um, so there's a first part where there's um, an evaluation that is being filled by students. So if you pass it, then you can stay in the bootcamp and teach other classes. But also the, the founders of the bootcamp are really looking for uh, motivated uh, people who are willing to make the content as accessible as possible. Um, so they're really into a positive mindset and that really got me into also, I, I got pretty confident then on the on the topic and it allowed me to dive into subjects that were a bit harder to, to master. Um, and uh, in, in terms of uh, the feedbacks from um, the people in the boot camp, so they now start to require a bachelor degree in a quite technical Field and but uh, the the first sessions were really heterogeneous. So you could have people who really just finished um, an engineering degree, and some people who were into uh, international trade, and some people who were into uh, who were teachers in uh, you know French teacher, for example. So it, it was quite hard to. To manage to you know to have such a, la- a large scope uh, of um, students' background and not everyone uh, moving at the same speed, uh, but it's also t- tending to become a bit more homogeneous as the data uh, the data field is going more popular and and uh, but also there is more and more requirements before um, you can get into data science positions.
0: You have been interning for more than three months at anasan which is a Paris-based startup backed by a white Um So, for the, for the audience who are not familiar with the company, can you share a brief overview about them, uh, as well as uh, some of your responsibilities?
1: So, the the company is uh, quite old. Actually, it's four years and a half. More recently, it really got into data science and into Uh, the the company is trying to propose kind of a smart uh, Excel. So they're willing to create data exploration, data cleaning, and data uh, visualization product that is as close as possible to the requirements of business users. So they're putting a lot of data science in into the platform and uh, but also a lot of uh, practical insights from what the end users actually want um, so my internship topic is on syntactic string transformation understanding from examples because there's no or few tools on the market and no tools in Excel or in Tableau that allow you to extract information from this textual field without programming so we expect the user uh, in that case to activate uh, the function that i'm uh, developing uh, on uh, text transformation understanding and simply type next to the column of the uh, next to an example in the column of the textual data uh, simply type what the user would like to extract so if you have an address and the person is typing the zip code i my them tries to understand that the person wants to extract the zip code, and does so for the whole column. So I defined a set of um, text transformations that could be applied, and I'm also trying to learn from the context of the data to generalize as much as possible on the whole column of the data. And and if you take, um, for example, a, a full cycle, you have someone who has let's say emails he wants to extract the first name from the email or at least the first block uh, before the dot which most likely is the the first name so i my text information understanding algorithm extracts first name and then from a second action the user wants to know whether the name is most likely a female or a male name say for a marketing targeting issue and in that case, I have an LSTM that is, that is classifying whether the name of the person is masculine or feminine. We are trying to deliver as much content and uh, to be as close as possible to the needs of the business users on the, on those uh, features that we develop. Quite interesting, too, because I have a lot of... I, don't know, I mean, the, the, the company is still pretty small uh we, there's 16 of us mostly engineers and data scientists and you have a lot of autonomy when you work in such a structure and um, every proposition that you make valuable to to the product and then uh, submit it to end customers in in several uh, uh meetings and yeah so it's a way to learn both technically and also learn from a um, from the end customers, what brings value to, to business users uh, on the market?
0: Yeah. So, I'm curious. Like, uh, I mean, you mentioned you were full time intern at ASIN, but do uh, you have to like come back to school after you finish? Or?
1: Um, so it's a Nen of studies internship. So oh, I I, once I have finished the internship, I'll be fully done with school. So I still have to write a master thesis, second master thesis uh, on the topic which I uh, just explained.
0: I see. Very very interesting. This is more like a future forward question, but uh, like even Joyce, Bear, and you like doing a variety of different internship and different environment. Where do you think you're gonna end up it for your like first job at school?
1: So I'm really interested into machine learning and deep learning applied to um, healthcare and to the medical field right. in general. Right. Um, so I'm currently applying to PhD positions in that field. Hmm. Uh, cuz i'm really interested into the research uh, in that field for for the moment for the next 3 years i'd be 3 to 5 years i'll be doing a, a phd in this topic and uh, and then i see uh, where that leads me
0: do you plan to like stay in france or do you do you looking at other places as
1: well well my girlfriend just has been accepted for uh md phd so she's in in the medical field my interest also in the medical field comes from uh, comes from her feedback, but she's been accepted in Lausanne, so I'll be looking for something in uh, in Switzerland.
0: Yeah, full circle, going back to Switzerland, right? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. I actually recently read a book on the application of like uh, deep learning on healthcare. I think it's called Deep Medicine, written by Eric Topol. Uh, so, okay. I, if, if you're interested in kind of like general uh, overview, of various. Uh, application of, of deep neural networks in, in healthcare, you definitely should take a look at that. It's, it's really interesting to see how uh, uh, that technical aspect can have solve problem in like cancer or like even better the workflow of hospital, stuff like that. So I think you will definitely be very interested in, in, in reading it.
1: Sure, okay, I'll have a look. Thanks.
0: In your blog, you have a list of very in depth uh, data engineering articles in which you cover like uh, big data platforms, you know, such as Hadoop, Spark, uh, AWS, Google Cloud. Uh, Elasticsearch and uh, Neo4j. So can you provide a quick summary on the current state of the state of data engineering technologies as well as your personal tech on some of the emerging trends?
1: Well, I think you have to be full-time into data engineering to really talk about the trends in this market because uh, it's really moving fast and from a data scientist perspective, the tools that I'm using might not be the, the one that reflect the most uh, the, the state of the market, but I'll give a high level overview of at least my understanding of of the current trends on the market so i think that spark through by spark is really getting quite popular i hear more and more data scientists in paris who are using spark on a daily basis because more companies are moving beyond the step of the proof of concept and from my perspective it's also the second company in which I work, where the company earned $100,000 worth of credits on Google Cloud Platform, because they have this competition where they award quite a, a big amount of credits. So they are investing a lot in, in startups, and they offer a bit more credits when you join um, Google Cloud. Um, so I, I, my personal bet would be to see GCP going really strong on startups and on young graduates, and they are currently deploying I think a paid version of Google Collab well at least they were making uh, they were trying to collect feedbacks on having a paid version of uh, Google Collab in small pop for uh, frequent users so um, then in terms of uh, graph databases so you mentioned Neo4j I think that more companies are looking at currently uh, graph models and graph algorithms uh, and graph databases because um, it's while gaining interest, um, people are becoming more confident with the use of uh, graph databases. And I think that we start to see the potential of such technologies. There are many use cases that could uh, easily benefit from uh, from uh, such data structures. And, and I think that it will keep getting more and more popular over the, the next years.
0: Perfect. So let's talk about a project of yours on data engineering that I found very interesting. So in a NoSQL Big Data project, you built a Cassandra architecture for the GDOT database. So can you discuss how you work on this project from scratch, including the whole uh, data pipelines, the exploration, performance, resiliency, as well as some of the a bottleneck in, in
1: constructing this project? Um, so just to give a bit of uh, context, so the GDILD project, it, it's a project that monitors, that draws data from all articles published online, worldwide, and all events happening. So it links an article to the topic of the article, so it there's a topic extraction, there's uh, sentiment extraction, it covers also the themes uh, that are in the article, And it's updated every 15 minutes. So you can only imagine... And it's worldwide. So you can just imagine the amount of data collected on the GDEL project. And it's completely free. So it's a great start for anyone looking for open big data. And if you unzip the amount of data they have available, there's over 1 terabyte or even I think it's 2 now terabyte of uh, unzipped data that is available. So... It's, it's really a, an interesting project. It costs quite a bit of money if you want to get a platform running uh, for such a large amount of data, but I simply discussed the, 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 the big steps to get something running with uh, uh, the GDL project. So one of the first steps would be to set up Amazon uh, F3 buckets. So we, we chose AWS on this one because we had some free credits. Uh, then you would create a that downloads, so fetches the data and loads them into s uh, 3 buckets. Then you would set up uh, EC2 clusters and uh, install on those clusters. You would have to install Cassandra because uh, that's the NoSQL technology that we used. Uh, so Cassandra, then Zookeeper for the resilient architecture. And uh, we also install Spark for the treatment of the data. So that's the, the personal choices we, we've made. Uh, we had a cluster of uh, four uh, pretty large machine, so the, the cost was rising uh, quite importantly. So for the treatment of the data, we used Scala in uh, Zeppelin notebooks. And so to build the ETL, we build an ETL that loads data, processes it. And uh, to, so to process the data in such cases, it's just that there's so many columns of data and so many data sources that you might be interested in. Uh, that you need to filter all of them sort all of them and one of the cool things with the GDEL project that they, they pre-compute uh, they make a, a sentiment analysis uh, on the article so if you want to look for um, how people talk about the United States in the news for example they you would look for all articles whose main topic is United States and you would simply extract the sentiments attached to the article, which makes the queries quite easy because there is not a lot of uh, machine learning to apply on it, so it's quite accessible. We then built the ETL to put it into data frames and load them into uh, Cassandra. And finally, we built um, queries um, on those Cassandra tables, so using CQL, which is Cassandra query language, mm-hmm. and we went for a basic exploration on the number of articles on a certain topic over time or the average sentiment and link also the sentiment with events that occurred uh, because they have a table for so they have a a database for articles and they have a database for events occurring so you can see how the different countries uh, react to a certain news so it's really uh, you can get a lot of insights and it's real-world and live data yeah. updated every 15 minutes. So it's really interesting. We spent a little more than $250. We had it running for 10 days. So you can just imagine the, the cost it would be to maintain that online. Uh, so that's why we shut down the, <laughs> the project and uh, the, the cluster at some point. Uh, but if you're willing to gain some uh,
0: uh, some experience on big data on your own, then you can definitely go for the GDEL data. Superb! Yeah, I will link the GitHub repo in the show and also people can take a look at, at uh, that project. I mean, you include everything people need to know about this project, including the architecture and some of the events and the series article and the code. So this is super impressive. Yeah, I mean, Spark and Cassandra are like really one of those technologies that I've been hearing forever, but I never had the time to learn or actually use them. Let's talk about writing. You have another section on your website. That focus on machine learning articles, so you cover like starts and time series, uh, data visualization, supervised, unsupervised, graph learning, and uh, model optimization. Can you talk about your generic process of, you know, writing technical articles? You know, including like choosing the topic, determining the scope, uh, brainstorming the outline, you know, coding, and uh, sharing it with the public.
1: Yes. So I started writing articles uh, around one year ago, I had some topics in mind which I wanted really to structure and uh, to, I wanted to, to have you know, something that would reflect my understanding of a topic and also to get the opportunity to dive into a topic uh, to the extent where I feel that I can explain it to anyone uh, on the internet just you know finding my website my github.io and that was the main motivation behind so for the intellectual challenge so you have some blogs on the on the internet that are really professional so i'm talking about for example machine learning mastery and if you follow the feed of uh, such guy he's he's publishing articles where he covers a topic from really from a to z and he goes into generative adversarial networks and he will write about it for Uh, a whole month, I have a really less structured approach that is based on what I feel like talking about at the moment, and what I'm interested in, and what I want to get into, because you don't have to be an expert in a topic to start writing an article on that topic, because you become that expert uh, through the process of writing on it. So it usually... Uh, a topic arises after a discussion that I had with a friend or a colleague, um, an article that I read and I felt that I also could bring something uh, on that aspect or uh, an issue that I faced and I had to look up for something on the internet. The most important variable is, I think, uh, to be interested in, in the topic and that will be reflected uh, on the quality of the, uh, of the article itself. Then I always start with a notebook, most of the time. I write a full notebook uh, that is running, um, and then I publish it on uh, GitHub. So I have a repository that is called Machine Learning Tutorials, mm-hmm. and uh, quite funny, because it reached uh, 300 uh, stars the other day on the, on GitHub, so it got quite popular, and, uh, and I keep adding notebooks to this uh, repo. And... Once I have this notebook, my understanding of uh, how the code and the structure works is quite clear. And then I can start, uh, I always make a first part on the theory and then uh, an application with all the code. And then I have this process where I'm building, well, illustrations. Uh, I use Pages on Mac and it's really flexible enough for the the kind of illustrations I want to make, um, which are most of the time, Quite basic, but you know, just graphical enough to allow a better understanding uh, of the of the topic, I guess. Then on the part of uh, how I share the article when I make it public, well, I'm I'm not really good at this. Um, so I've published so far on my um, on my blog around 115 articles in a year. So that's like two articles a week for the the whole the whole year. It took me quite a long time to do all of that because a single article is two to three to five, six or seven hours of work. So it might take uh, quite a long time. And I'm not really good at sharing it publicly. Some of them, I, I republish them on the on LinkedIn, but uh, I just, you know, I, I see some people who end up finding my blog by, you know, just looking for specific information on google and, uh, and they end up finding my blog so now i i get more and more messages from people who find my blog and have additional questions so i also update the articles if i see that some people reach out by email and, uh, and found that this or this explanation uh, wasn't um, you know perfect and that i could improve it but uh, that's it for the, the the whole process i say
0: yeah, I'm glad that you uh, get into the details and the, and the sort of the tactical advice for aspiring writers who want to share their work. I, I hope that people who listen to this can, uh, can get a sense of how to at least uh, start writing and sharing their work.
1: Yeah, and it's really something that is accessible to anyone, I mean, you, you can start writing as you start your data science journey, so it's, it's, not, it's really easy to access. Uh, those kind of uh, the, the 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 writing really helps you understanding. Then you can uh, also get involved into into writing on, on medium, but you can have your own blog, and it's uh, really something that will definitely help you in in the long term, I'd say.
0: So uh, let's quickly talk about two machine learning projects of JAWS that I I think is very interesting. First one is a uh, language recognition application that you build using. Markov uh, chain and likelihood decoding algorithms. And second is the uh, data visualization of the French traffic accident database that you build with D3, Python, Flash, and Alter. So, would you mind uh, discussing this project in brief?
1: Yeah, so the first project you mentioned is a language recognition web application. So, by language recognition, what I mean is detect the language being used uh, in a sentence, whether it's French, English, or Italian, for example. Nowadays, I think most people would approach the problem with uh, an LSTM or transformers. And a few years back, before uh, Jorgen Schmidt-Huber, who invented LSTMs in 97, I think, well, the, the, the first approach would have been completely different. Actually, Markov chains are really good at this kind of a task because um, the way you make transitions between letters in a single word really uh, defines the... Um, language that is being used and it's it does not work for uh for example if you try to classify whether a first name is um, a male or female you, you won't get good results with um, with Markov chains, because it's really harder. But if there's a lot of A's and O's in uh, Italian, for example, it will simply be reflected in the in the decoding uh, likelihood that you that you get through Markov chains. So it works well. It's pretty classic one, and uh, and it still works really well. And um, then on data visualization, the idea was to a uh, uh, whole data visualization on. Um, accidents, so car crashes, traffic uh, on the French roads, because the French uh, government is publishing those data, uh, both you know geographically, but also information on, on the crashes themselves. And we had to kind of make, a um, to improve a certain type of uh, data visualization and, and to also develop our own data viz on, on this one. So what we did is to create an interactive trackpad uh, at the center of, uh, you know, we, we had nine or eight uh, graphs that were in the in the corner of a, of a web page. And the, the central element was a trackpad, but not a, uh, a simple trackpad. This, the trackpad was, in fact, uh, T-SNE dimension reduction, so T stochastic neighbor embedding uh, dimension reduction uh, projected on a 2D plane. So it's dimension reduction, and we use that to allow the user you know, to explore the data, turns out to be, to so you can get a lot of, a lot of um, feedback from uh, this kind of data exploration, because you can explore using this simple trackpad in the middle, you can explore up to eight, nine, or even more variables at the same time uh, on your data. So it's, uh, uh, we used that, uh, we created that using Alter which is, Great, great uh, interactive visualization library in Python, and deployed it in the, in the Flask as I pretty much always do when I have to to make small uh, web applications.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing those these projects and details. Let's let move on and talk talk about uh, deep learning. So you you have written about the theory of deep learning, uh, different architectures of neural networks, as well as application in NLP and computer vision. Kind of go back, you know, to almost the beginning you know, what, 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 when were you first introduced to deep learning and I guess what, what resources that you used to educate yourself?
1: Well, I, I was fortunate enough to have classes on deep learning since mm. my degree is quite new and uh, it's a degree in data science. Always there is this bias from teachers who want to teach deep learning and who will go fully into the deep learning theory and not so much into the applications. Um, so one of the books that I've used is uh, Deep Learning by Jan Goodfellow. So uh, it was the one published into MIT Pressbook. And this book is really good. It's from 2016. So you maybe, I don't know if it's still updated, but you won't find the latest findings into in deep learning. But to learn the theory, I think it's really impressively uh, uh, fluid. And uh, then some blogs, uh, such as Pi Image Search, I think for a computer vision is just excellent. And Basically, if you start looking at uh, some technical topics, you'll always find this blog. And yeah, so that's it for the mediums that I use to uh, educate myself in, uh, in deep learning.
0: And uh, you talking about computer vision, you have two projects that, uh, that are quite impressive. The first one is um, a series of uh, phase classification algorithms using uh, neural networks, and the second, one uh, phase detection algorithms using OpenCV. So, can you uh, just quickly go over these two projects?
1: Phase classification algorithm was kind of what was a project that we had at the university this year. Project uh, was quite interesting since we didn't know what we had to classify on this one. So, that was a challenge we had internally. So, we had a few Kaggle challenges during the the year, so Kaggle like challenges, and this one uh, was uh, one of them. And so, we didn't know. What the labels meant on the on the classification, so we had to go a bit blind on this one, and still apply the best classification algorithms. Uh, I went for uh, exception, which works pretty well, and the exception is, is using um, uh, depth-wise convolution architectures. And and if you want to look at what those are, it's it's really doing a great job at reducing. The number of parameters to train, in, and so your computer vision algorithm is just trains faster and also reaches uh, really good accuracies. And then I have uh, made some personal projects on face detection using OpenCV, and uh, I just found that the resources online were kind of all saying the the same thing and were pretty far away from the original paper uh, by Viola and Jones on uh, on how to detect faces on an algorithm. So I've, I tried to make a, you know, a bridge between those two. And uh, and I've made an article on Medium on, on that topic. And uh, face detection using classical methods, so not CNNs, but uh, classical methods, such as histogram of oriented gradients, works really well and for... Although the, all of the project I had to do making face detection through those approaches worked well, kind of a step to try before going to do fully deep learning solutions.
0: Talking about uh, natural language processing, you recently developed Fs Text, which is a few-shot learning text classification library, and you put it on GitHub. This library uses pre-trained embeddings and CSME's uh, neural networks. Uh, what is the motivation for this library, and uh, how was it developed?
1: Um, so this library is still a work under construction, so I'm really interested into how to make few-shot learning for text classification. So just to make it clear, what that means is that in most cases, users have data that are not uh, labeled, especially for texts, And so it might be user reviews, and in that case, Well, you would have to ask someone to label tens of thousands of uh, uh, user feedbacks on your product, for example, and get to see whether that comment is positive or uh, negative by making few shots. Class, uh, text classification: You just label uh, a few number of examples per class, uh, say five, ten, or twenty examples per class, and see what the, the and, and then apply it to the whole uh, of the data. And it's really a great way to gain insights from your data. It won't be as accurate as if you were training your algorithms on the whole data um, itself but I started to read papers on on that topic and one of the use cases that I found was for medical pre-diagnosis so my girlfriend being uh, into medicine we were into a hackathon and we had to develop a pre-diagnosis tool and I asked her to annotate uh, a few data Per class so we predefined some classes that we were identifying. I, so she then started to write into natural language what a patient would say to the doctor if he were you know to, to have this kind of disease and then we made few short text classification based on that. And we use so pre-trained embeddings. And there's a, re- a really simple approach uh, developed in the paper: few-shot text classification with the human in the loop. Can't remember the author of the paper, but the the, the approach is really simple to use um, pre-trained embeddings. So typically, word to vec for a sentence, you determine the embedding of the of the sentence. So you do that for the two classes, if you were into binary classification, and so you determine the average embedding of the two classes, and when you have a new observation that comes in, then you classify the observation as uh, the one that is the closest, you know, the which has the closest embedding, and it's really a simple approach using Word2Vec, and it turns out to, to work really well for a binary classification as long as you have at least three training examples uh, per, per class. So there's nothing that exists into this sector for the moment in terms of libraries. And there's a friend of mine who's helping me in this library, but we're definitely looking forward to you know, having the library to develop uh, also a bit uh, over time.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm very looking forward to seeing the library being developed and and shared more with the community. It looks like you started writing about reinforcement learning articles recently, Um, so so what are some of the applications of reinforcement learning that you are currently mostly excited about?
1: I think reinforcement learning will, for still a few years, suffer from the fact that, you know, really um, adoption of machine learning and deep learning takes time and i think that reinforcement learning really comes last when it comes to adoption in into real world applications but and it's really personal take on on this one but uh, applications to robotics are i think incredibly exciting one of the applications i can think of as going on the market really in the near future would be uh, on the way we fly drones since I think many university labs work on drones, so there's options, for example, to track a user with the with the drone or to stabilize a drone under certain uh, weather conditions, uh, and it can now be quite easily handled uh, by deep reinforcement learning. So I think that it's one of the things that we'll see on the market pretty soon. Yeah, and, and I think that we are also gaining a lot of insights from. Uh, from reinforcement learning in other tasks uh, and i mean there were recently uh, we introduced monte carlo tree search uh, which is a quite a simple reinforcement learning algorithm for optimal path finding into tree structures and i think that many people handle uh, tree structures and and getting you know those reinforcement learning methods to, to search into that is is quite a uh, interesting and and it's quite new also and More generally, um, I think maybe DeepMind taught us new ways to play Go or to play Atari games, uh, which is also interesting, remains in in the scope of of games, but uh, I think we'll have a lot of of great innovations coming from reinforcement learning, but not going to the market really soon.
0: So from um, looking at your profile, I saw that you have been doing some freelance technical writing. Uh, What could be your advice for people who want to get into this? Uh, to, you know, earn extra money while uh, working on interesting projects?
1: I think it's really a great deal to, you know, to make money from uh, articles online. Um, And I contacted some companies and I was contacted by other companies to start writing technical content for their blog. Mm -hmm. And many startups are actually looking for, you know, it's a great way to get leads and for people to find your website. And if you're developing, say, uh, data science platform, then you would pretty much like to have a blog that reflects your research interests um, so I started to write for two companies and well now up to yeah, three-fourths of my revenues monthly are made through freelance activities and uh, it's both a great way to make money online but also to propose topics mm-hmm. and to get them accepted by the company and once i'm interested in a topic and i really want to dive deep into into this because this article require a bit of work it's you have to count six seven or eight hours of work for an article on, on those topics but uh it's a great way to get to the bottom of a topic and and have your content also published on uh, another blog and everyone it's a i think it's a win-win and, and Many people could benefit from starting, you know, to make freelance uh, writing.
0: And then, um, finally, can you share your thoughts regarding the tech and data science community in uh, Paris?
1: Well, uh, it's really active. So there's more and more startups that are established in in Paris. And so the startup community is growing. There's uh, this large incubator that is pretty famous, uh, which is Station F. There's Events uh, every day on the on data science and AI. More and more large companies are also coming to Paris and opening offices in Paris. It might be Facebook, Google, Uber. The government is also supporting innovation and making AI as a central plan and investing into universities who make a lot of research on the on AI in general. Most universities are now joining forces to get a larger impact worldwide and they they created a common structures to have all of their papers uh, being uh, published under the, the the same institution so it's really dynamic and, and really interesting uh, what what's going on in, in Paris these days
0: yeah that's, that's great to hear so at this at this part of the interview I want to move on to the the last segment in which I'm going to ask you uh, three quick fire question and you can keep uh, tactical advice for the listener who uh, who's uh, seeking them okay the first one is, what are the companies which are doing exceptional data science work that you really admire?
1: There's quite a lot, but I think that I'd quote Benevolent AI, who is doing a fantastic job in identifying new treatments in the pharmaci- uh, pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. Using So part of their research is how to use already published papers to identify failures and sources of failures and how you could leverage that on new uh, drug treatments, and it really has, I don't know how, how this will go in the, in the future, but I think it has the potential to be really huge and, uh, and to leverage the 95% of, uh, of research failures that there is in this market and to leverage that into new drug treatments, and it's really exciting.
0: Second question is, what is one book that you would recommend for people who want to develop a better analytical mindset?
1: I think I'd quote a book that goes back to the basics to, of uh, econometrics and statistics, which I think is the best way to get clear insights on your data. And, and starting with that and not a machine learning book is, is interesting. Um, so there's one which I really liked, uh, which is called economic data, uh, econometric data science, a predictive modeling approach by Francis Gibault of the University of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. uh, the, the book is really, really good.
0: Great, I'll I'm, I'm put that into show notes so people can, can look into that. And then finally, imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Maybe
1: that being young doesn't mean that you have to be unexperienced. And over time, I think I realized that not every year of experience is worth the same and one year of consistent and dedicated work can literally change your life so you just have to make the most of it.
0: So I really enjoy our conversation. I glad that um, you know I learned about your background and in, in economics, you know your, your degree in natural science. your various uh, projects and internships you have done in what school and then your list of articles and, um, and many things more. I put that on the show notes so people can have a chance to kind of like read it through your profile and con- connect with you for if they have any more questions. Overall, I think this is a really uh, one of the uh, more substantial conversations that I have so far for my podcast. I'm glad that you were willing to to, to share um,
1: your advice
0: as well as your spirit.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, James. It was really, really great talking to you and, uh, and sharing this uh, data science journey.
0: Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website JamesKelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us Goodbye for now